0: Hi everybody, welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. It's Toby Miller here. I'm with someone I've only just met, but have corresponded with for forever.
1: For a very long time.
0: Dr. Deborah Ramsey. Hello, Deborah. How oh, are you? Toby, I'm very
1: well, thank you.
0: And this opportunity to chat is occasioned from my side by the publication, I guess, three months ago? Yes. Roughly? Probably
1: roughly, yeah. Sounds of about right. your
0: book which is about a very important topic and it's one that won't go away so tell us about about this topic and why it (laughs) won't go away
1: well it's about World War II in American media and actually the fact that it wouldn't go away is one of the things that attracted me to it in the first place the way it kind of cycles back into media um, over time, and it's happened a couple of times. the most recent being in the last two decades or so, starting with Saving Private Ryan. But it's, it wasn't just about, it wasn't just because of Saving Private Ryan that it kind of cycled back into the media sphere currently. And every time it does so, it's slightly different, and that also interested me. So
0: Slightly different, and does that depend on the era, or the medium, or both, or other factors? I, I know you look at games, for example, as well as television and cinema.
1: I think it depends on all of those things. I, mm-hmm. think it de- I think it also depends obviously on cultural and historical and political context. Mm. So for example, in the post-war years when it was still relatively bubbling under, um, films of World War II were kind of rewriting the history slightly, so Russia, for example, the Russian contribution is kind of written out, the Chinese were kind of written out, um, and they've kind of stayed written out in a sense, <laughs> since that time. Um, so I think it depends in very much on what's happening, um, and on the medium itself, as to how, how the war gets configured uh, <coughs>
0: When I took the US citizenship test, one of the questions you had to know the answer to, there were a hundred questions you would be asked. Any ten would be selected on the day, and you must get six of those correct in order to qualify. One of them was which three countries won the Second World War? There are three countries, I I know you didn't realise this, that won the Second World War. The question is, do you know which ones?
1: Three countries that Hmm. won the one well, Second World War. That would be Russia, the UK, and the US, I would assume. No. It's no?
0: The United States, somewhere called England,
1: oh, right, okay.
0: and France,
1: and fr- oh. which
0: last I saw was locking up Jews <laughs> and sending them off in railway carts. But no, they.
1: Oh, absolutely those Frenchies wonderful. won the war.
0: 20 million Soviet citizens and counting. No, sorry, they weren't there.
1: That is extraordinary, and that's in the test, <laughs>
0: mm-hmm.
1: that is absolutely extraordinary.
0: So, as you say, Soviet Union written out, forget China, forget Canada, Poland, Australia, New Zealand, Papua New Guinea, I mean, endless. <laughs>
1: But I, I did not know that, and that is that is truly extraordinary that that's in the citizenship test. I love that stuff.
0: Yeah. So, what got you interested in this in the first place? What turned you on or turned you off about the United States and the representation of its role in the Second World War?
1: Well, I had an interest in. I've got, got a long standing interest in the relationship between war and media, and the relationship between memory and media. And after Band of Brothers came out,
0: which was an HBO, was that an HBO, HBO series? Yes. HBO yeah, series, I, I actually didn't see it. I'm
1: Released right. in 2001, um, first airing of it happened in September 2001, um, just as September the 11th happened. So, because of the kind of weird media reaction that happened around September the 11th mm. there was some nervousness around the fact that it was about war, so it didn't do terribly well when it was to be released but it's done exceptionally well on DVD um, Subsequently, and I think that I think that started my interest in, in a sense because it's a it's a very it's beautifully shot um, it's very seductive in a lot of ways um, it kind of pulls you into this very emotional elegiac kind of <coughs> excuse me
0: <coughs> the mustard keep going the mustard the elegiac nature of, of Dijon mustard. <laughs> Heavens above.
1: Of mustard and World
0: War II. That's enough mustard yeah. Well I guess we've got more World War One, I don't know. But anyway. It pulls you in through beauty, through aesthetics. Yes, Is that absolutely. what you're saying? Yeah. Yes,
1: even though it's about war. It's about, you know, a very brutal, very brutal Well, war. there's
0: a long history to that.
1: Abs- absolutely. And because of the, my previous interest in other aspects of the, the mm. history, mm. I, I started to notice kind of continuities, particularly with the figure, the figure of the soldier. So when I was doing my MA, I did that on um, representations of the soldier in television series about the Gulf War and so the soldier and the way the battlefield is represented would be long-standing interests and then i started thinking well there are continuities i'm seeing so there's the standard perception in studies of media and memory that the past is always reconfigured to serve the needs of the present and that's true to a degree Mm. but there are also aspects of the past that seem to exert pressures of their own and refuse to be reconfigured So, and I was seeing that particularly in the figure of the soldier. So that started interesting me and I wanted to map that out. So it kind of, it grew from there into seeing... How all all of that interrelated across media rather than in one medium, because that I think is another thing that studies of war don't generally do, is they don't look at different media, they'll look at one medium. And of course we know, nobody lives, nobody just watches films, nobody just watches television. We have all these ideas and perceptions that come from various media rather than one.
0: And what is this persistent logic or imagery or whatever of the soldier?
1: I think particularly with World War 2 soldier the idea of the citizen-soldier, the idea of the soldier as um, a kind of sacrificial figure, rather than a figure that goes out to die, but a fig- uh, uh, rather than a figure that goes out to fight and kill, a figure that goes somehow out. goes to die, and
0: the shedding of blood for the nation, absolutely, and masculine and blood, in this masculine case. Blood.
1: white, white male blood, and also that idea of brotherhood, so the brotherhood of soldiers, and the soldier is primary victim of war, um, which actually I think stems from Vietnam and Korea in particular, and it's kind of filtered through into World War II. Tom
0: Brokaw, Uh, whose work I imagine you read for this, was the voice of NBC News before the now lapsed Brian Williams. He wrote a book. I think it was called "The Greatest Generation." Oh, is that right? right? Which is a pay end to these men yep. who were his father's generation. Yep. There was a wonderful essay in the Nation just after that book came out, saying, "Well, last I heard, these guys were responsible for you know record numbers of rapes, incredible domestic yep. violence before, during, and after the war, racism. astonishing racism, <laughs> incredible homophobia, yep. violence against the other, complete bigotry." If this was the greatest generation, thanks but no thanks. But they did beat fascism, thanks to yeah. the might of US capitalism
1: Absolutely.
0: and state
1: socialism. And I'm not by any US's means, heart. you know, no. denigrating no. The indiv- some of the, I mean, obviously there were individual acts of supreme bravery and heroism mm. well, mm. and all of that, but mm. to call To identify an entire generation by the actions of what were in effect a minority, an extreme minority of that. And as you say, all of that, Marianna Mariana has a lovely phrase, she calls it hiding in plain sight. So all of that stuff, all of that all of the atrocities, etc. Yeah. You never hear about the world war 2, yeah. and especially you never hear about American soldiers. But they were there, you know, the, yeah. Yeah. they were they were happening. They were just not reported in any great way because you couldn't, yeah. you couldn't do that, so. Well,
0: think about when John Kerry and Bob Kerry talk about, well, we were told it was a firefight in terms of the rules of war. What does a firefight it means You can fucking kill anybody you like. <laughs> And you know, what did William Kelly not do? He did not have a firefight to play. I mean, for God's sake. Anyhow, so. But,
1: that, but that's absolutely right. And I mean, in effect, Callie. Was rewritten as the victim, in that, under uh-huh. the a victim of his superior officers and the victim of his orders, and in a sense that continues today with Iraq, and some, I mean, with Iraq, with the Iraq war and some of the atrocities there. It's, you know, these are soldiers; they're not served well by their superior officers. They're placed in a situation where they're kind of allowed to run free, and it's not really their fault. And they've been brutalized by war. And actually that's nonsense. We need to take responsibility for our actions.
0: So your book is basically a very long version of Buffy St. Marie, The Universal <laughs> Soldier. Is that right? <laughs> I mean, can I just buy the single? You can still buy yes, a single of sure. Buffy St. Marie and then I don't need to read yeah. it. No. It's pretty much Well, there, there.
1: is a bit more than just about <laughs> the song. Um, little bit more yeah representation of the battlefield as well so there are obviously ideological consequences in for example band of brothers the way that seductive structure that i was talking about there's an ideological consequence to that Mm. and actually that's where i think games are more honest because they strip all of that away and you're left not with we're fighting because we love the man next to us or we're fighting for some kind of abstract ideal like democracy. In games, you're fighting because for the hell of it, really.
0: Yes, you can't imagine a film genre called first-person shooter. No, you
1: can't, which is a pity, actually, although some films do come close, I think.
0: Do you think I should warn that man that his laptop is propping up a sugar bowl that at any second, because of the angle it's at, could tumble? Oh. Or is it one of those things where interrupt- I just have to wait and watch? I
1: think you should wait and watch. Yeah, I know. Because I think it's that element of risk. Yeah, and. And unpredictability.
0: And they're probably sugar cubes, I'd say, from this angle. They are sugar cubes. In which case, it's, it's not so the bad. The risk
1: is not quite as awful as it might be if you were no.
0: actual I remember trouble. once when I was a teenager going to a religious event where the man next to me or in front of me, I forget, which was about to sit down on his bowl of hat when it was time to cease showing praise to the Deity, and no one was going to say a word to him because it was just too fantastic. They're
1: so all down to hell, you realise mm, this? No, 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 no. Did well, he sit true. on the hat? He
0: did. Uh, it was great. Was it ruined? It. Was the
1: hat ruined?
0: The historical record is incomplete <laughs> on this point, Sad to say. <laughs> What? How did you select things? I mean, take, I don't know if you looked at oh, this. the easy the questions,
1: Mr. Bennett. Well, no, but I mean, for example, Justify your
0: case number No, buttons.
1: no, I don't mean that. that.
0: Did you, did you, I, no reason why you should have, but did you look at TV series like Combat or 12 O'Clock Last? Yes, 9? I
1: talk about, I talk about them, And actually, I think that's a big um, neglected part of the history of World War in terms of, there are loads of books on World War II and film. Yep. It's not much on World War II and television, and it was a big part of US television.
0: It was gigantic, and the... The thing about those series was, from what I can remember, is there actually isn't much fighting anymore. There's lots of interpersonal, masculinist, romance and drama and anxiety. And the, and the squad's kind of
1: wandering around. And yes, share. this
0: sort of, as they call it in Britain, the squaddy ethos, as they call it, right? So, sorry about that little glitch, folks. No hmm. Deborah, I was just asking you about how you selected the text you look at and you were saying that you're a big fan of looking at the things that are popular that that
1: matters yeah so popular maybe so mm. I think you have to start with Saving Private Ryan because it did make a big ripple out to 98? The media. 98, I 98. Well I remember.
0: Um, I, I mapped them out by girlfriends and uh, broken hearts.
1: Was that a particular. Bad yeah year? no that
0: was yeah. Or a good one? No. Um, wife number two left on Valentine's Day.
1: Oh, which in was, 98?
0: Yeah which was the Sunday that I got a book reviewed in the New York Times book review.
1: <laughs> good review?
0: The reviewer said he uses lots of 50 cent words. But on the grounds that any <laughs> review is a good review, the answer is yes. In any event, uh, so you have to start there. Now, why so did you she ha-
1: leave because of the review? <laughs>
0: <laughs> She's been planning it for a long time. So uh,
1: why do we have to start there? Well, before that, there'd been these grand pronouncements of um, there wouldn't be any more great World War II movies that came out.
0: Like the Western, it was done, was yeah, that it was done until yeah. Unforgiven or something. So,
1: no. firstly, after the Longest Day, um,
0: which is 1960 or 61,
1: you've got me there. But I've it's one to, of the I'd it's it's, it's yeah, yeah. 40 years, years yeah. earlier.
0: Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So, firstly, then 20, then Basinger, who wrote the World War Two combat film, made the same pronouncement after the Big Red One, which I think was 1980. I, not I
0: don't even know what that is. The big red one? The big
1: red one. Um,
0: Never heard of it.
1: No. Kind of semi-autobiographical and of course the name of the director now has completely escaped me. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, and then along came Steven Spielberg and wanted to do, and it was part of the groundswell of remembrance that was happening in the US anyway. And, um, yeah. and the Tom Brokaw's greatest generation was part of it. Yeah. And they, he wanted to make this film to honor his father's generation, even though his father actually fought in the Pacific, not in the European campaign. Yeah, Spielberg. Kitty,
0: yeah. Did I didn't. I know nothing about this family.
1: So I think you have to start there because it was a big shouty movie that made a big shouty splash in yes. in terms of World War Two. Yeah. And then I went on from there to. It happened kind of by accident that each each thing I look at is both. Uh, so I've got Saving Private Ryan, which is in Europe, but I've got films in the Pacific theatre as well. And then Band of Brothers, and just as I was finishing writing up, The Pacific came out, which is the the series that is set in the Pacific. And of course World at War, the game that I look at, the first person shooter, is set in the Pacific and in the Russian campaign. So there there just seemed to be a a balance that happened. kind of organically, I suppose, so once I saw that that, that was happening, I was it, it just worked in terms of, because the Pacific is, is often kind of supposedly the more forgotten aspect of the war, even though while the war was happening during World War Two itself, there were more films about the Pacific than there were about the European theatre.
0: And not only that, but of course it's the thing that actually wins the war for the Allies because of... Pearl Harbor. The sugar tongs are safe, the laptop's been closed.
1: Excellent. The
0: contents are now in equilibrium. I watched uh, a couple of weeks ago Tora Tora for the first time in a long time. It's really good. I watched it when it came out. I was about 11 or 12. It's fabulous.
1: It makes the Americans look completely disorganized and the Japanese look very focused, honorable, and
0: and humane. And humane. Actually. Yeah. It's really interesting. Yeah.
1: It's not a great film in terms of... I mean, by... It, it, I, I suppose what it does well is it, it it shows the bureaucracy of it. So it shows the okay. Americans kind of caught up in this bureaucratic process. Um, how
0: they got everything wrong. How yeah. they knew, what, thank you very much, what was going to happen, but they didn't communicate it effectively, right? Exactly. And that's sort of the tracks of it. Interesting. So yes, the Pacific Theatre, right? At the time, lots of things, and then fewer and fewer as time goes on.
1: It seems to fall away. There's one. There's one person who argues that it's potentially because the Pacific resembles Vietnam, but there are a couple of interesting films about the Pacific. Um, There's one that. Oh, for heaven's sake. You see, this is the irony about doing memory studies, is that I have an appalling memory of my
0: life. Um, you know, my friend Faye Ginsburg says you study what you're not good at.
1: Excellent. I'm going to use that. So, you know,
0: economists can't run businesses, <laughs> literary critics can't write fiction or poetry, psychologists can't speak to people or contain rats in the mazes. sociologists don't understand the world going on around them, anthropologists are frightened by difference. <laughs> Geologists trip over rocks. I mean, the whole thing is apparently a, yeah, it's just made My laid grandmother used you. to say
1: teachers were appalling parents and nurses were dirty. Okay. Her. So you know.
0: God, Graham. Yeah, she, she was. She was, was a was, punchy gal. She was
1: definitely. That's one way of describing <laughs> her. <laughs> yeah. oh. But yes, so There was
0: parents. some film about there was something some film about, that film did about did something.
1: Business. I do this with my students, and they're, they they oblige me. Go, you mean this one? And I go, yes, that's. Exactly thank you so what much. I mean, thank oh. you so much. I mean,
0: um, it'll come to you. It'll
1: come to me later on. Let's, let's leave it for now. But there were a couple of interesting films about Pacific May yes. in the interim, but not many. Well, I guess there's South Pacific
0: music. apart from does the that musicals, count? Can you. Is that counting your world, or is that too far? Um,
1: it should count, actually, because it's. It's kind of a filtered way of looking at the I suppose. But and there were an absurd number of musicals uh, and light-hearted and. Going to wash that man right out of my hair. Absolutely uh, about the.
0: Very law. very sound advice. Uh, I've very always sound found. advice,
1: I think. Yeah. Um, so, are there many men you've washed out of your hair, or just the X Y?
0: Only in commercials. <laughs> yeah. Pantene was one of my biggest of sponsors. Course, yes. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's a
0: very, very interesting question. So more on Europe. I'd never thought about that, but of course it's true. I think 12... I, yeah, definitely. That's absolutely fascinating.
1: None but the Brave. Ah, oh, None but called. the
0: Brave. Okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: A very interesting film about American soldiers and Japanese soldiers stranded together on a Pacific island yeah. and forced to kind of work together to survive. Yeah. And then it all kind of falls apart when they get reunited with their with their forces. But it's and Frank's an artist in it and one yep. of the producers. Um...
0: Frank who is Rather like Ronald Reagan, not so present. I think Ron spent the war making training films in Long Beach from what I can recall. Tough gig. Even though he allegedly liberated Belson. <laughs> well. He did it from Long Beach. Yeah. That's clever of him. So um, what about things like, say, a town called Alice? As I don't
1: know what that is. Oh, well it
0: doesn't I it was a, a, a movie Rings a bell, in the 50s and with Virginia McKenna and Peter Finch, and I think, and then a very popular miniseries in the 80s. And it's about this place Alice Springs in Australia and this couple meet and fall for one another and then somehow they're involved in the fall of Singapore and they get separated. And true love never runs smooth. Blah-de-blah. I'm just wondering about that because... Uh, I don't know what... It's hard to know what... I mean, one of the things you must have had to deal with was also what gets classified as American. So with the Battle yeah. of Britain, that movie, which is horrible,
1: uh, see, would that cla- would that count in your list? No, you see, again, you're asking me the tricky questions. Yeah, sorry. Um, I kind of went... I, I thought about that a lot. And I thought, yeah. I think, if I'm going to justify what counts as American, it has to be almost an industrial connection. Yeah. And although there are a number of films that are obviously kind of co-productions, etc. I've tried to, from the industrial side, i tried to stick yeah. with films that were predominantly yeah. produced by American American producers. Obviously, that gets more difficult as time goes on, because there are co-productions, uh, you know, the whole industry has become more confused. But, I think, I think that helps I mean, managing the, the entire yeah. spectrum of things that have been produced about World War II was, was very difficult.
0: Yeah, it possible. Um,
1: and uh, I And I struggled with that, particularly in one of the chapters, where I tried to kind of present an overview of the, the wartime generation's mediascape and the baby boomers. I don't think, I mean, it's it's almost impossible to do that in, in one chapter. In a sense, you need an entire book to do that. But it had to be addressed, because, and I'm, I make no claims that it's comprehensive and, you know, deals with every single facet, but you can nevertheless still trace out um, the development of... of certain things across those structures like Mm. the soldier, the representation of the battlefield and the idea of the war as a good war.
0: A good war. Is there more on soldiers than on mariners, sailors and airmen?
1: I think now there is. I think, it's, I, I think one of the things you can see is an increasing narrowing of focus onto the infantrymen, the, the World War Two infantrymen. And I think that's interesting in itself, because in that narrowing of focus, not only do the other services get pushed out, but you also lose the fact that actually more civilians were impacted by the war than soldiers were, and more civilians died in World War II than soldiers did. So that's a massive part of the story of the war that has been crowded out by looking at this tiny percentage of American forces who were engaged in active conflict. Mm.
0: What about gender things? Well there's that as this, well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Also crowded out are you know the stories of the women yeah. who fought. Um, they touched on to a degree just while the war is happening and just afterwards particularly with stories of nurses in the Pacific and in um, Japanese concentration camps but you know that story again has been kind of Not really out, there out. No.
0: I can't remember. Are there women in Bridge over the River Kwai? I don't
1: know. Oh, I, know. I don't think so. It's been gear, a while it? since I've seen that. Book.
0: There's a boring film.
1: Well, actually, I remember no? enjoying it, but then I saw it many, many, many years it's ago, a so I might watch it again.
0: It's a shocker! We'll Nothing happens. Happen.
1: Don't they blow up the bridge though? Happy
0: I've never That's lasted that exciting. long. No? It's just appalling. It's just Alec Guinness casting his strange Catholic gay eye on all these. Naked bodies while they're being whipped. As far as I can see, that's pretty much what it is.
1: <laughs> There's a bit more to it than
0: that. Yeah, well, not the one, <laughs> not the version I saw. But in any event, wow, interesting. And listen, tell me about this. I remember going back to the Saving Private Ryan thing. Walking out of it and being quite moved by it, actually, that it was fairly effective in interpolating you and tugging at heartstrings and so forth. And one of my friends that I went with, I think it was Anne McClintock, saying to me, "God, that was t- something like that was disgusting. One more justification for U.S. imperialism. Everything gets resumed to the Second World War to say whatever we do is legitimate because we save democracy in the world from fascism."
1: Well that's part of it. I think that's why it's so important to understand those cycles when, as World War II cycles back in. because of precisely those kind of arguments. I mean, um, Barack Obama, recently, uh, a while ago, I can't remember which crisis he was referring to, but he was saying America needs to intervene because America is different, it doesn't just stand by and watch these things happen. And that idea of America as different is very often because it. it It's been given this kind of light on the hill, yeah, that sort of thing. And you know, it it steps in and intervenes, like it did in in World War Two. This is the kind of narrative that's built up around it, and it's not. Of course, America joining World War Two is much more complicated than that in the first place. But that is the story that that took hold in the media at the time. So, this idea of good war has its roots in the idea of the righteous crusade, which is, yeah. is what Eisenhower called it. So, you have this idea of this righteous, or, of, an, of a, an essentially peaceful nation that has been goaded into response through the Japanese. And that gets rehearsed again after September the 11th that you've got a, an essentially peaceful nation that is being victimized by others and has re- needs to respond in a particular way. And, of course, the idea of t- Total war as well is very much from World War II and that that victory must always be total. And wars today are just not like that at all. So you've got these conflicting ideas of war happening because of the investment in World War II. Do
0: you mind not asking Deborah whether you have experience of war? I'm just wondering from your accent whether you might have.
1: (laughs) South African. Yeah. Not, expe- not experienceable directly, but I grew up obviously in a country that was highly conflicted and effectively in a state of civil war, although the government would never say that it was in a state of civil war. Mm. So I, I have seen bombs explode, I have kind of lived in, in that state where there is a constant fear of, of violence. But thankfully, no, I have not directly experienced And that's another thing that interests me about war, is that it is for most of us in the West, thankfully, it's a, a mediated experience. Mm-hmm. Um, our understanding of it comes through media, and certainly for the majority of Americans in World War II it was a mediated experience.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, and only the soldiers were experiencing it directly. So that's interesting to me is, is how we understand something so um, complex through media
0: Audie Murphy is an interesting figure in yes, this right I, I think I'm right in saying he was the most decorated US veteran in that war. in Although, World War 1 I mean, no two. 2 2 yeah yeah and he became a Hollywood actor that's right yeah, very much B movies and one of his movies is about him he plays himself in his own bio Pretty interesting but by and large a lot of these people were not veterans who played these heroic figures.
1: No and I I I think think. one of the best examples of that is um, John Wayne in Sands of Iwo Jima because the actual flag, the three surviving flag raisers are in that film towards the end but they're kind of overwhelmed by mm. Wayne's star persona um, and what he brought to the idea of the Citizen Soldier. Isn't there one,
0: I can't remember the name of it, where Tony Curtis plays a Native yes, American soldier hero? that's right, he plays, right.
1: He plays um, Ira Hayes. Ira He's Hayes, the,
0: yeah, um, and there was the... There's the Bob Dylan song, isn't it? To the Ballad of Ira Hayes. Yeah, yeah. Because
1: yeah. God forbid you should have a Native American actually play a Native American. American. Of course. No, you no, have to yeah. have Tony Curtis. Nice Jewish boy
0: from the Bronx. Yes. Whatever he Of course, he, was. he will understand. Yeah. Yanda is the castle of Moiforda.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, fine. Okay, so that's, in, that's fascinating. That's really fascinating. And the other thing is, I guess, by and large, the thing about these war films is that they're about very young men
1: yeah.
0: and middle aged men. And the middle aged men are the ones making the decisions from relative safety. And the young men are the ones enacting them and being impacted by them. Is that true do you think
1: age um, stuff? I think that's the perception of it. Uh-huh. Yes. And I think um, it that ties into this idea of war as a a right of masculine identity and masculine Mm. endeavour. So it's how the soldier, in a sense, becomes a man. Mm. Or the boy becomes a man. Is I think, a recurring kind of feature. War is a testing ground of masculinity, by the way. And that, uh, that starts with Vietnam. The film is out of Vietnam. Very much, I think they that, that all of those films are very much about. It's an it's an exploratory place for the male psyche. It, it's in a, and it's only important in terms of how the male soldier reacts to it. Mm -hmm. but the sad thing is you can see that even to a degree in, in Band of Brothers which I love but which is deeply problematic in some ways so for example when they discover the concentration camp in the episode Why We Fight one way of looking at that is it's only important in terms of how the soldiers react to it so it damages them in terms of what they see and it hurts them and that in terms of the way the story unfolds, that's its key significance. So it's not, in in a sense, what is happening is this is not um, the story of an of an American an American experience of the war. It becomes the war as an American experience and as particularly a young male. American boys' experience yeah. of coming to aid, coming to, aid, uh, to maturity.
0: Can we get back to something that you mentioned before and I cut you off somehow from movie, describing yeah. more, no doubt. <laughs> Namely exceptionalism. And this idea of American exceptionalism it runs very deep in the anti-socialist ideology of the nation. Could you say a bit more about that, this innocence claim that is, was repeated endlessly after September 11th, 2001, however improbable and mendacious statement it
1: may be? I I don't know where it comes from, um, but certainly you can... I suppose in World War II, you know, there were, particularly by Henry Luce, who... Um, was the founder of Life Magazine. There were these grand claims about the 20th century being the American century. Mm. And when World War II started, he made the claim that it needed to be Um, it it needed to be America's war, it was a very extraordinary claim to be making when you know Europe was in a state of occupation and trauma Mm. but yes it was going to be America's war and I think in a weird way it carried on after that so you get you get veterans kind of saying well what kind of war do, the, do people think World War II was? What, there, there's one veteran who actually says, "What kind of war do people think we fought?" Anyway, you know, it somehow becomes reconstructed as this righteous war, even as it's happening. And I think because of that, in it, there is almost an ownership of America taking control of the of the century after that. And... I think maybe some of the, I'm not answering this very coherently because I'm thinking it through as I'm saying it, but I think some of the exceptionalism stems from the fact that apart from events like September the 11th, like Pearl Harbor, America came through the World War relatively unscathed, apart from obviously terrible individual losses.
0: 350,000 guys died, right? More or less
1: country itself yeah, yeah. was intact. Well so in fact you, it
0: was better off.
1: Yes, exactly, because of industry and all kinds of other things that were happening. So it is possible to see America as a good war and it's possible to see America as as different from everywhere else. Yeah. So maybe that's where that narrative comes from and continues. Interesting. I yeah. I suppose it's easy, one of the things I was very concerned about was making these kinds of observations when I, I'm not American, but I think in a sense, in fact someone said to me one of the, one of the, some of the feedback I got from the book was this is not a book that could have been written in America. And I remember thinking, I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think maybe the outside perspective is important, but at the same time I'm wary of making great claims about what America is about when I'm not American myself. So there's a balance there that I'm trying to go for. I don't know if I get it successfully, but... Being able to see something from the outside, but also being very aware of the fact that there is a great cultural thing that I'm Sorry. potentially missing because I'm not a man.
0: And can you tell us again the title of the book?
1: American media and memory of World
0: War Two, and it's published by Routledge. Routledge, right? Routledge yeah. It's as we were saying, only recently out. But have you had any reaction to it?
1: Not yet. It's gone to be reviewed, um, so um, you know. Waiting and seeing. Yes.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, could you tell us a bit? Take us back a bit in your own work life. I mean, tell us how you got to be Deborah Ramsey. How did you become Deborah? Ramsey? Again,
1: the easy question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mr. Miller, thank you for those. Um, Deborah Ramsey, the academic, I suppose, or well, the whatever you
0: know, writer, whatever you wish to to pick.
1: I think some of my interest, a, a lot of my interest in media, came from being South African and living in a time when. Okay. The media was strictly under government control, and not that I—I um, I was in a privileged position, being white. I was at a liberal university. Um, I wasn't particularly political, so I'm making no claims to that whatsoever. But I was at university during a time when a state of emergency was declared in the country, and that is meant, the 80s. yes that meant that small laws changed. So, in the past where there had been political protests on campus, by law the police could come onto campus. When the state of emergency was declared, when there were political protests, the police could now come onto campus. And some of the things I saw were very different from the way they were being reported um, in the news. And that started me thinking, okay. I suppose in a way I have been naive up until that point, but I started thinking it's so important to be able to decode what media are telling us. And that led to kind of an obsession with understanding that and wanting to pursue that. And I think it's even more important today because media saturates so much of the way we think and, well, I'm not saying that Everything we do in a sense is mediated including um, what we remember and all of that is so much part of our identity how can we not want to understand what media the mechanisms that go into creating media the industry behind it the reasons for the messages we get the way we react to to those messages um, all of that just has been an abiding fascination.
0: At which university was this that you were studying at?
1: The University of Witts University. You can,
0: I was going to say, just say Witts. When you said liberal, I figured yeah. that would be it. Yeah. And. Did they have a thing called media or film or whatever Actually, in retrospect,
1: I was doing a <laughs> drama degree, uh-huh. and in retrospect, even though it, there were difficulties about it, with it at the time, in retrospect they were fairly progressive, because they were one of the first universities that made you do everything. So not hmm. just film, did television. Hmm. But um, which was relatively, you know, in the eighties, that was still quite a radical thing for a university oh. to be doing because film studies was acceptable, but God forbid you should look at television. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, there was there was an understanding of how media operated, the media of the time were operating in the country, in that university. Whereas other universities were not necessarily teaching it in the same way. So I think it was fortunate for that. that
0: huh. And what did you do after your drama degree?
1: I did a bit of acting and, like most jobbing actors, I did children's theatre and the odd music video. Um, yeah.
0: In South Africa? In South Africa. Or? Yeah, yeah. And
1: then. Then I decided I wanted different things in life, and it coincided with meeting my husband. Uh-huh. So it's not his fault that I left acting, um, but it coincided with meeting him, and I, I just wanted a bit more stability. So for a while I floundered around not knowing what I wanted to do and then finally when we emigrated here I decided I wanted to study again and came back to academia and just have not looked back since then.
0: Wow, wow, that's a nice story and what does he do?
1: He works at DHL, at for Oh, the couriers. He does, he yeah. does logistics and kind of process analysis. Yeah,
0: so oh, they make lots of money, those men. That's handy, that sounds good to me. I'd marry a logistician if I could ever Would find you? one.
1: Well, I didn't know I was finding one at the time. You didn't know you was one at the time. No, I, I don't think the word
0: existed. Or no, at you least, don't
1: think so? No, but yeah.
0: no, everyone's husband you meet now does that. Really? Yeah, and That's they always be really good lives. Unique. No, no, no. There are about seven of them. That's in the annoying, world. really. <laughs> yeah, and, and half of them work for DHL. <laughs> yeah, I had a tenant in LA whose husband ran DHL at LAX, you know. And <laughs> Absolutely.
1: Wow. And
0: he used words that I couldn't understand for well, all the
1: time. yes, my husband pretty much he's a yeah, he's a very lateral thinker. I'm a very literal thinker, but lateral thinking for logistics actually
0: works. Yeah, so. wonderful. Great. So that's that's really fascinating. So you had yeah. this experience of being inside the production of meaning, as it were, through drama, music video, et cetera. children's theatre in particular, I am
1: uh,
0: and studying that beforehand, and also then uh, returning to, to academia in a different way, as a student, but with a view to becoming a professor, and now here you are. So it's a great trajectory, actually, to have this geographical and occupational shift, as opposed to the rather dull arrow-like teleology that most folks pursue.
1: And I think sometimes there are pros and cons of both. Um, yeah. uh-huh. I think, for a number of reasons, um, I yeah, I don't think I was ready to kind of come back until I did. And I, I think all things happen for a reason. So. Certainly the geographical changes have been useful, as you yourself will know, because you are the travelling professor. So there there are both advantages and disadvantages to studying media in a culture that is different from yours. And I am very grateful for the fact that I have a slightly different perspective because when I teach students who are not from this country, I'm very... we're
0: in we're in London. Yeah,
1: sorry. Yeah. So when I when I teach students who are perhaps from China or from other places. I'm very aware of the fact that there's a whole lot of cultural assumptions we make mm-hmm. because of the experience we have of meaning mm-hmm. that are just that you, that you just don't have. It may not be common. To, but but long getting, long.
0: getting back to the book and to South Africa. a place I've never been. What would be for you relevant about an image of the United States growing up? Mm-hmm. I mean, what was the U.S. to you as a South African?
1: Do you know what? This is, and again, I suppose this is this is an intensely personal story, and I, I don't think it's, it might not be true of all the South Africans, but for me, going back to my grandmother, that
0: feisty lady, that
1: feisty lady, she had piles of Life magazines,
0: uh-huh. and I
1: remember going through them and being... I don't know if she knew I was going through them actually, I think she might have been horrified had she known, but discovering some of the famous real photographs Mm. in Life magazine, um, I think they might have actually been from Korea, and then a few later on from Vietnam, and being horrified Mm. by them. And at the same time, um, kind of mesmerized that they could make it into a, a magazine. So I suppose... Which wouldn't have
0: happened in South Africa. No. And you knew that even though you were 12 or whatever. Well,
1: I don't know. I would love to claim that I knew that, but, but. probably not. <laughs> um, and certainly not because, actually, television had not been introduced to South Africa 68? At that stage. No, 76. Well, know, 70. 70. Yeah, so you five, see, you're seven so seven much six better. Than 68
0: life. is Israel, I think South Africa yeah, is 76.
1: So I, I grew up without television, yeah. so I grew up without... No, no civilization. Sorry about that. Absolutely, yeah. Grew up with radio.
0: Wow, wow, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: So those I suppose that's why those magazines visually had such an experience.
0: That's a wonderful story, thank you for sharing. Well, Deborah, I hope you'll come back into the pod again soon, maybe with your next book.
1: I would love to, Shelby. Thank you very much. It was really
0: good. Cheers.
1: Good morning.